Every once in a while, something happens where you get to feel really good about America's place in the world if you leave yourself open to it. Finally, some good news out of the Middle East, and the United States even had a major hand in it. We don't talk often enough about AI on this show because it's an awfully big part of our future, and that includes our politics. We'll start to get into it a little bit today. Joe Biden and David Axelrod are in a fight, and it feels a little like our uncles are beefing, and we'll help you sort out how to feel about it. This is one of those episodes that reveals how much Ravi and I have combined to be the Forrest Gumps of American politics the past few years. I've worked closely with Joe Biden. Ravi was one of the first people to know he was Obama's VP pick because he was Axelrod's assistant at the time. Now we're both friends with Axe. I just texted with Sam Altman about his ouster at OpenAI the other day. So with our bright futures behind us, we are here for you. Finally, it's Thanksgiving. You're about to be around family, including some people who will say some awful stuff. We'll review some of our rules for approaching it, as well as predict what's likely to come up and what we think you should say. Welcome back to the podcast that helps you, the 54% of the country that votes for progress in every election, convince your conservative friends and family members to join our majority. This is Majority 54. All right, Jason, well, seems like some really good news today. Israel and Hamas appear to have agreed to a deal to free 50 uh, Israeli civilian hostages in return for the release of 150 Palestinian prisoners from Israeli jails. Uh, and it also seems like as part of this deal, there will be a four-day pause in fighting, which you know it just coincides with an interesting week in America. So like obviously, as this issue has probably divided America as much or more than anything else that that isn't neatly, you know, you know, organized along party lines. It will be fascinating to see if this leads to a, a ceasefire at the Thanksgiving table. But uh, all of the hostages released by the by Hamas are women and children. At least three Americans will be released. And uh, there's some data on what the uh, the Palestinian prisoners are as well. The the ministry in Israel released some data saying that uh, there's like a pool of potential people they'll be pulling from mostly male, mostly 16 to 18, 84 of whom uh, were detained because of stone throwing, 19 have been accused of attempted murder, 220 of those are from the West Bank. So it seems like mostly West Bank folks who, um, you know, I mean, those 19 notwithstanding, most of whom aren't like of those sort of like, you know, doing 100 years in prison for murder types. Uh, it seems like a, seems like a welcome development jason are you uh, mm -hmm. are you optimistic here well yeah i mean you can't not think about the families who you know it's been since october 7th that these folks have been held hostage including children um which i i can't even begin to start to verbalize my feelings about that without like getting emotional so we can't even get into it like just the idea of worrying worrying about your children while they're being held hostage by by terrorists. Uh, so there's no question that that's a good development. Clearly Netanyahu has been getting pressure to prioritize the hostages. Uh, it, understandably, Israel's been very focused on the fight against Hamas. Uh, I know people have a lot of different views on that, but look, that's where Israel's been focused. And a lot of people within Israel were saying, hey, you need to also focus on getting these people back. Uh, and as anybody who has listened to the podcast that you have done, uh, which I would highly recommend about the conflict, as is usually the case, there is a higher proportion of Palestinians, Palestinian uh, prisoners released, uh, you know, like a, in this case, it sounds like it's about a four to one ratio. Um, and it's not surprising that they're focused on folks who would return to the West Bank instead of literally to the battlefield um, of Gaza. So yeah, it's definitely a positive. There's also what, like 200 potential hostages still left behind. Um, so I don't know what happens next, but yeah, it's anytime people stop killing each other for a few days and hostages get released, you have to at least see that as progress. Yeah, the disproportionate nature of this is a big part of the history. So this guy, Gilad Shalid, an IDF member, was an uh, IDF soldier, was kidnapped uh, some time ago, and it took like, I don't know, like a decade to get him back and over a thousand prisoners to be swapped for him. At one point, I think they released, Israel released 10, something like 10 
Palestinian hostages just for proof of life on Shalit. So not even the release of Shalit. So that's how disproportionate this is. And actually, I, I spent the, the weekend reading this book called um, Rise and Kill First, which is a kind of the equivalent of like the, if you ever read Legacy of Ashes, which is a book about the CIA and about like the history of like CIA botched assassinations and things like this. This is the Israeli equivalent of it, basically going through the history of the Shimbet and the Mossad and these elite IDF units. And what's fascinating is that there's this period of time in the 70s and 80s where these elite units within Israel were overcome with war criminals, Ariel Sharon being one of them, I didn't realize quite how bad he was, who would execute prisoners because they were worried that they'd be used as bargaining chips and incentivize kidnapping. And it's such a crazy part of the history. Like they're, you, they're interviewing people on the record today saying, yeah, I would do it again if I could. Uh, and they're, it basically tore apart Israeli society. And in many ways, I think was, I didn't realize, like had the roots in the sort of Likud labor split over the judiciary because the judiciary is actually who held the IDF and the Masada, especially in Shin Bet, uh, responsible. And it was a lot of these sort of old-timey judges who brought judicial review to Israel for the first time, like Justice Barak, uh, who's kind of like a big luminary figure in, in Israel, uh, who was a visiting professor actually when I was in law school. Like, that, the, like the roots of this conflict are like very much in that history. And like this lopsided nature of prisoner swaps, I think has some really unintended bad consequences on the ground. And uh, it seems like the Biden administration played a huge role in it. I mean, I guess they, they had a, a group of aides who were super dedicated to making this happen. It also sounds like it was incredibly difficult because you had, it wasn't just like you could go to Camp David and sit down with you know, the leaders of Hamas and, and Israel. Uh, it, even that would be incredibly difficult, but it's more difficult than that. You've got all these other players at the table. You've got Qatar, who just like the Taliban, Hamas does all their things through Qatar. Uh, and then you've got, um, uh, you've got uh, uh, Egypt involved. You've got all these other countries in the Middle East. And, and then you've got the other countries who have, uh, you know, hostages, have citizens among the hostages. So uh, I don't know how they did it. Um, but if you really step back and think about it, um, it is a pretty monumental thing. Even if you take the hostage, I mean, obviously it's monumental for the families uh, and it hasn't happened yet. Um, we have to, you know, make that caveat that nothing is for sure until the hostage, as Biden, I think said, until the hostages are returned home and the guns have stopped for a bit, nothing is for sure. Um, but I think it's really important to, uh, to note, uh, that getting an advancing army, which is what Israel is at this moment, getting an advancing army to pause its advance uh, is not, a, not an easy thing to do. Uh, and, and it's a very, very big deal um, that they've pulled this off. And that's why I said in the intro that there are moments, they don't happen as often as they used to, they don't happen as often as we'd like, um, where you can really feel good about the, no matter where you are in this conflict, like if you're, if, if maybe you're, you want a ceasefire altogether and you want Biden to be in favor of that, maybe the fact that Biden has been um, pressuring uh, Netanyahu to uh, do everything he can to avoid civilian casualties and that kind of thing, maybe you're on the side where that bothers you, um, which I don't understand, but there are a lot of those people. Um, either way, you have to look at this and say, okay, this is a good thing. People will st stop being killed for four days and hostages will be released. That's a major accomplishment. And you, and you got, I think you got to feel good about the idea that it's our country that's helped deliver that. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, Biden's got a lot of criticism from various corners on this. I mean, the right thinks he's been too hard on Israel. And, you know, there, there are pockets of the left who call him Genocide Joe because they feel like he's, you know, uh, you know, like he, he overlooks the civilian casualties. And, you know, my sense of this is that he, I think he's gotten this tonally and strategically and tactically right every step of the way. Like, you know, horrendous October 7th incident occurs before Israel responds. Biden, you know, announces his support of our longtime ally who had just, you know, incurred an incredible atrocity that included Americans uh, among those killed and kidnapped. 
And then as the Gaza campaign took shape, he, like you and I on this podcast, asked questions about, well, what's the aim here? And uh, and the standard we bring to our allies and to a democracy like Israel is the highest level of standard about um, you know ensuring the morality of the campaign, minimizing civilian deaths, et cetera. And he, as he watched it unfold, maintained support while also, I think, showing courage uh, and um, pushing the Netanyahu government and Israel to define its aims and to take into account civilian casualties. Now, he's not going to make everybody happy and probably won't make most people happy. But I think at the end, uh, you know, as we sit right now, this four days is going to be really important. And I think he should take a lot of credit for that. And I think this is critical because if you look at the history, the these ceasefires can go one of two ways. One is it can lead to a even worse phase of the fighting, which happens a lot. Like basically each side then, you know, it's almost like halftime, right? At a, in a football game and they come out with more energy and in some cases adjustments, which could very well happen here. I think it's actually the most likely scenario. Or like if we want to be hopeful, we could use this period of time to say, all right, take a breath um, build on some momentum and, uh, let's get to the point where we can all like most rational people can agree on the contours of at least a medium term solution to this, which is Hamas not in power, hostages released, and a significant commitment of aid and support to the people of Gaza to rebuild their lives. That seems like a, like a really good uh, worst, you know, best case scenario in what has obviously been a tragic, tragic event. Yeah, I think what worries me about what happens coming out of the cease, out of the four day ceasefire is that what you got to look at what Hamas's incentives are to do this, right? Um, I think to a very small extent, Hamas is interested in the goodwill that comes from releasing some hostages, but I think it's a very small piece of their calculation because I think it's pretty clear that Hamas is not that concerned about goodwill from the West because if they were, you don't murder, rape, uh, and kidnap in the first place, right? So I don't think that's a major calculation for them. I think it is mostly they're getting absolutely hammered by airstrikes and and now by a a ground um, uh, infiltration into Gaza and I think, frankly, they needed four days to reposition and to resupply. Um, yeah. And and so it makes you wonder. So it goes to your point about they're going to be, and Israel knows that, that they're going to be better positioned uh, and they're, they're going to fortify during those four days. Um, but it also means that in order to get to the next one of these, you may have to go through the same thing. Um, yeah. and, uh, and that's not very optimistic and it's sad, but it, I think that's the reality from a, from a, military point of view, I think, on this. Yeah, I think one thing also worth mentioning, and it's obviously, this conflict is not about us as Americans as much as it's about the Israelis and the Palestinians, but they're obviously we're Americans evolved, but also we're a big ally, and this has split our country. And one thing I've found is, this. I think this showed up in some of the polling we've talked about in previous weeks, but I've certainly seen it in my life, is that one thing I'm grateful for as we head into Thanksgiving is that this election is not a month from now. Because I do think mm-hmm. that there are serious divisions that hopefully will be healed by the time the next election comes along a year from now. Because I'm seeing it in the numbers, but I'm also seeing it in my life. Like, you know, I'm putting together this arena reunion, and there are a ton of people, or a ton might be an exaggeration, but enough who are explicit about, hey, like, you know, longtime members of our community who've benefited a lot from our programs who straight up are saying they don't show up because of my personal, I don't even run Arena anymore, but because of my personal position <laughs> on Israel. And I'm like, this is like a rather, I would say, sad and short-sighted view on this country. Like to to take a, um, you know, cut off your nose to spite your face approach to you know, the existential threat of Trump is to me insane. And it's something I hope people uh, can heal through in the next 12 months because look, like we have got to come together and we need every single freaking vote. And this idea that people are not going to vote for Biden, uh, you know, forget about me, but that's a proxy for how people are going to treat Biden. You're the former leader of that organization. Right. He's the current 
leader of the country. Imagine, I think is your point. Imagine what he's dealing with. And that's unfortunate. I'm sorry to hear that. Right. And the arena for people who listen, who there's no, we have no position on, on any of this Anything. that I know of. Like it's, we are just an open just, place for people to come. Yeah. Like yeah. obviously if somebody came through and said insane things, no matter what side they're on, right? Like then yeah. that's, that's like on them and reflects on them, but it's not specific to the Israel-Palestine issue, right? Like, no, we have we have no for those who, test. We for those who yeah. don't know, Arena is an organization Robbie founded to train the next generation of progressive activists and candidates. Period. That's that's not our yeah. Not and our maybe other, in Grab an Or. If you stick around for Grab an Or, I'll mention this event we're doing in New York. It'll be pretty cool for those of you who are around. It's a reunion event. But all to say is like that's on my mind right now. I know it's not about us, but. You know, it's you have to kind of wrap your arms around what you can control here. And one thing I'm very concerned about, obviously, I've spent a lot of time on this issue for somebody who's not a Jew or a Palestinian or an Israeli or a Palestinian. But even I have my limits to say I care a lot about this issue. I've obviously argued forcefully what I think is right. But the primary uh, work that we do as Democrats has to be about like defeating Trump. And we have to walk and chew gum at the same time. And I'm worried that people are using this as a litmus test without really coming to grips with who Trump is, both on the issue they care about, right? Because if you think I'm too extreme on this issue, you need to meet Donald J. Trump. But if it's like you, but the other thing is like, there, this is not the only issue, people. Like, and actually it, it mostly does not involve our country. Like it's, it's something I do think you, it's important to have a position on and, and you certainly aren't required to, but it, there is, it is a moral dilemma. But like, come on, like we've got real work to do here in the next 12 months. And, you know, we, we might be under a greater existential threat than anybody if we get the wrong person in office. Well, um, speaking of things that can walk and chew gum at the same time, that is a good uh, segue <laughs> into our next subject, which you and I haven't really talked about enough, but is a, is a growing political issue in the country where I think neither party really has any idea what to do. Uh, and that is AI. Um, particularly, uh, I think the reason it's in the news this week is because Sam Altman, who's been the CEO at OpenAI, um, which is you know what brought you Chat GPT, uh, he was ousted. Um, do you know a lot of the back? I've read some of the stuff, but I, I figure how much yep. of you, how much how how into this are you? Go ahead. So I think like a couple of things to lay down here is is OpenAI itself was established in 2015 as a nonprofit organization. That was basically a research arm that was meant to create a uh, a transparent and nonprofit driven um, artificial intelligence arm. And interestingly, it was not just Sam Altman at the table; it was Elon Musk. There were funders like Peter Thiel and Reid Hoffman. And uh, it its charter from the very beginning, if you read it was explicit about being transparent and not working for the profit motive. But over time, it morphed into a, a hybrid organization that had a for-profit element within the nonprofit. And the reasons for this depends on who you trust. It's like some of the people within OpenAI will say, hey, we needed big computing power. We needed the money in order to do the stuff we needed to do. We needed to take... Uh, money from places like Microsoft who invested heavily in this. The the cynics will say that the people who are running OpenAI realized how much money they could make and wanted to create an opportunity for that. Uh, I'll leave it to the audience to decide on that. I, I am not sure myself what mixture of those two, and actually both could be true. But what wound up happening is over the course of the, the history of this company, from what we can gather, there have been splits within the company between we could say two camps, although there's more than two. One is the sort of Sam Altman camp, which has kind of moved towards commercialization of this. I would put Microsoft in that bucket as well. They invested up to $8 billion in OpenAI through the for-profit arm. And then you have people like uh, the founder, you know, a group of people who left to found this company called Anthropic. Who I think felt like OpenAI was moving too fast. Elon Musk has claimed that he felt like they, um, that they, there's alternative theories of Musk on this, which actually knowing Musk both could be true. One is people, some people say Musk didn't think they were moving fast enough. Then there's another group that Musk himself has said that he felt like the, they he was hoodwinked and that this was started as a nonprofit that was transparent and now it's a closed for profit that's basically a subsidiary of Microsoft. 
I actually think he's right about that latter part, even you know, even given given the source. But there's a big split now between Sam Altman and his camp and this guy Ilya, who is the chief scientist. Who everybody's talking about Sam Altman, but this guy Ilya is, and his name's Ilya Sutskiver. And you're a Terminator Two fan. This guy is the Miles Dyson from Sky Skynet. He's the bearded dude from Jurassic Park. He's the guy who's created all the technology. And it would be as if Miles Dyson, if you remember Terminator 2, like Schwarzenegger had to go back in time to try to kill Miles Dyson or, you know, you know, we all, if you've watched it, I don't want to really spoil anything. But essentially, this would be as if Miles Dyson didn't need somebody to go back in time to convince him that the technology was dangerous because Ilya has been... At every step of the way, Jason been talking about how concerned he is about this technology. Um, I'm going to play one clip from a Guardian documentary, um, and we should talk about this. And, and I'm taking deliberately, audience, some time to get to today because I, I I don't think media outlets are actually talking about this beyond a business story. Like this is a philosophical story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, Jeremy, let's let's tee up the first part of the clip from the the Guardian documentary. Um, that we that we have. The problem of fake news is going to be a million times worse. Cyber attacks will become much more extreme. We will have totally automated AI weapons. I think AI has the potential to create infinitely stable dictatorships. Yeah, we. Can, I mean, he goes on, and people can listen to it, but. Jason, so this is where we are is there's there's more from Ilya that we'll get to in a second, but essentially Ilya and this board, which is a weird collection of people who I'm not sure should be on a board, but they uh the nonprofit board and Ilya basically by all accounts led a coup to get rid of Sam Altman, who's the CEO and some members of his team. They did not say much other than they felt like Altman was not transparent. And uh over the course of the weekend, Microsoft, other investors, the media piled on. The board never really explained itself as to what was going on. Altman and his team started to rule out certain things and say it wasn't about a scandal. It wasn't about safety. It wasn't about financial malfeasance. And everybody's kind of like, well, then what was it about? The board till this day has not clarified it. But what did happen was most employees of OpenAI signed a letter saying they wanted the board out. Microsoft made it kind of clear that they felt the same way. And as of this morning or last night, Sam Altman is back in as CEO. They are now replacing almost every board member. And uh, among others, they have now brought on Larry Summers to the rescue, the former Treasury Secretary and President of Harvard. That guy just turns up everywhere all the time. Yeah, I have opinions, but let me stop there. That's a lot. But this is where we are today. Yeah, no, great, great job. I could not have done that. Excellent uh, summation of where we are now. Um, I, a quick anecdote. Um, so I think in 2017, so uh, Sam Altman is originally from Missouri and has been supportive of some of the work I've done politically. Um, and and I think also of VCP possibly at some point, but I can't remember. But um, anyway, so uh, I went out and visited with him out uh, in the Bay Area back in 2017. I remember sitting there with Diana and this is you know, six years ago. So uh, we didn't really have any concept of AI or really any sense of like the coming robotics revolution or anything like that. And I remember the day we sat down, I remember Sam saying that 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 had been a big day because that was the day that they got got a, a robot arm to be able to twist the way a human wrist twists. And he was like, we hadn't done that before. That's a big milestone. And we were like, we didn't know anything about any of this, right? So we're sitting there. And and then he starts explaining, yeah, Elon Musk just left because uh, I think he said he doesn't think that, you know, there's a way to do this where it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it's not evil. He's like, but I, I think we can, I think we have to. And so we have, we're just sitting there listening. I have very little to contribute to this conversation, as you might imagine, other than to ask dumb questions. And the line that he said, uh, that neither I nor Diana will ever forget is he said, uh, there's going to be a point sometime in the next few years, not very long, where Americans are going to look around and robots are going to be such uh, a um, ubiquitous part of our lives. Or he said, not just Americans, everybody, that it's going to feel like there's been an alien invasion. And he's like, and it's, when it happens, it's just going to happen super fast. 
And he was basically saying, so our job here is to try and make that something uh, that works for humans. Um, and it, anyway, it was for me like a watershed sort of moment in my brain, like my understanding of the reality I live in. And it just sort of shaped a lot of things. Um, I, you know, after he got ousted last week, I don't, I'm not real close with Sam. You know, we talk every couple of years. I texted him and just said, uh, you know, I'm sure you'll get put back in, but in the movie version of this, you're ousted by robots. So at least that didn't happen, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which he at least did find funny, I think. But well, anyway. I, I, I think like the, the, the coverage of this, I think obscures the real problem and the real questions, which is people are treating it like a business story, a personality story. And I think this is a deep, deep ethical and philosophical mm -hmm. story, which is why the board's behavior is really, really problematic. This is a company, it's called OpenAI, and nothing about this has been open. If you look at its its charter, it's all about how open they're going to be and all that, but also how not profit driven they are. And the past five days have been driven by Microsoft, they've been driven by investors, and they've been driven about conversations about how do they maximize the profit of the company, and nothing about it has been transparent because we still don't even have an original rationale here. The assumption amongst most reporters has been that this has to do with the nonprofit status and the pace at which they were commercializing this product, which who knows, there could be a new justification by the time we even post the audio from this episode. But I just, I simply have questions about uh, how much does anybody really know about what's going on here? And I say this because there was this, this Navalny documentary. I think I mentioned this on a previous podcast, but there was this scene in the Navalny documentary. This is Navalny from Russia, where he talks about this concept called Moscow 4, where you know he's around his team and there's journalists and they're deciding, do we call up these Russian state security uh, members that they had reason to think tried to kill Navalny? And he was going to call them himself and try to trick them into admitting that they killed him. And the people around the table are like, nah, there's like no way they're going to admit on the audio that they tried to kill you. And he told the story, which was, he's like, look, just because they're powerful, just because they're evil doesn't mean they're not incompetent. And he said a story about <laughs> how like a group of people had hacked an FSB member of like the state security chief in, in like some like high up, maybe even the chief itself. And they hacked his email and it turned out his, his email password was Moscow one and they hacked it. And then he kept changing his email password from Moscow 1 to Moscow 2 to Moscow 3 to Moscow 4. That's why they call it Moscow 4. And I think we're in a Moscow 4 universe right now where all the powerful people, and I'm not necessarily saying they're evil, but all the powerful people are way more incompetent than we realize. You see WeWork going down, SPF going down, and FTX. You have um, the Ray Dalio book, which is this book about the biggest hedge fund in the world, which we talked about last week. And Binance is kind of going down as we speak. Even the IDF, for God's sakes, is supposed to be like the IDF and the Mossad, like the most competent um, security people. You, you look around and you're like, and then you look at the board of you know what's supposed to be one of the most powerful, fastest growing companies in the world, and they can't get simple things right. And you'd start to say, wow, Moscow 4, like we're, we're in for a world of hurt as a society. Man, it's a great point. Um, and I think it's a really important point for listeners of this show to bring up when you're talking to people about why it shouldn't be Trump, why it shouldn't be uh, this anti-government crowd that's in charge. And that's because what you're talking about, one way to talk about it is a lack of competence. The other way to talk about it is you can, we live in an age where things are changing so rapidly that there's a lack of expertise in, in so many of the most important developments going on in our world, right? Because so many of the things that are happening are things that have never happened before. So the very limited group of people who can call themselves experts on AI are all experts on a theoretical concept. Yes. And, and, and this is true in so many different ways. So it's very much like the beginning of the internet. Um, but with much higher stakes. And and it's it's true in so many other things, right? I mean, like you name the, like just the Dobbs decision alone, right? The, the, after that, it's been, what, 50 years once that happened. It's been 50 years since we lived in a world where uh, the question of whether or not uh, abortion was going to be legal or illegal was even going to be up for grabs, which meant that the people in positions to try to regulate it, like the conservatives who want to regulate it, they've never lived in a world really right. where it was going to be regulated, which means even if even if you were to agree with them about regulating it to the degree they want to, they wouldn't know who to turn to for no, advice on how to do it. Nobody knows. And actually, so th that guy, Ilya, who I think needs to be the focus 
right now. Like, I, there's so much on Sam, and it seems like Sam, like, look, everybody seems to like Sam Altman and all that, but even by his own admission, he's not the expert here. Ilya is. He's like one of the most cited AI scientists ever and seems to be very concerned. And he gave an analogy that's almost dead on to what you just said in, in that Guardian documentary. Um, let's play this clip. He compares it to evolution. I feel that technology is a force of nature. I feel like there is a lot of similarity between technology and biological evolution. It is very easy to understand how biological evolution works. You have mutations, you have natural selections, you keep the good ones, the ones that survive. And just through this process, you're gonna have huge complexity in your organisms. We cannot understand how the human body works because we understand evolution, but we understand the process more or less. And I think machine learning is in a similar state right now, especially deep learning. We have very simple, a very simple rule that takes the information from the data and puts it into the model. And we just keep repeating this process. And as a result of this process, the complexity from the data gets transformed, transferred into the complexity of the model. So the resulting model is really complex and we don't really know exactly how it works. You need to investigate. But the algorithm that did it is very... So he's saying essentially, look, we may know the rules that are propelling this forward, maybe, but we certainly don't know where it's going to go. Like to use this evolutionary uh, metaphor, we, you could understand the basic mechanisms of evolution, right? Reproduction of the fittest or whatever, right? Like um, acquired characteristics. But we certainly don't know that an eyeball is going to result from that, right? So I think this is what makes this a very scary or depending on how you think about it, exciting time. And I think the fact that he's talking like that with that level of humility should should make us all very, very humble about where we're going here. And the point I was making, to go back to that and how people can talk about this in, in the political context, particularly with the upcoming elections next year, is I think that in a moment where it is going to be very important that we have a willingness to regulate the business side of this in order to try to make sure that it actually is centered on uh, goals that align with human goals, I think you're going to want to err toward the political party that is willing to regulate business and doesn't see everything that the market does as inherently good because the market did it. And that would be independent of Trump, independent of any in particular characters or personalities. That would be my argument for why I would want progressives to be the ones who have the reins over regulatory decisions in this time. So with that said, uh, we're going to take a break. After the break, we're going to talk about uh, a fight that's going on. Um, we're going to just really lower the <laughs> lower the conversation down <laughs> to the fact that uh, the president has, according to one report, referred to David Axelrod as a prick because he's been talking about whether Biden should run given his age. Uh, and then we're also going to get into uh, preparing you for your Thanksgiving conversations with people who may not agree with you on a few things. So we'll be right back. If you're like my wife, Diana, morning coffee is non-negotiable, but she was tired of waiting in line for an overpriced cup or settling for gritty, bitter coffee at home. And now she switched to using AeroPress. And I don't think she's ever going back. It's so easy and convenient and incredibly unique. Uh, she said to me the other day, she was like, I didn't know we could do this at home. This is this is awesome. Saves her a bunch of time in the morning. AeroPress is like a French press, only it's better. It's the only press that uses a patented three-in-one brew technology, combining the best of several brew methods into one portable device for a completely unique and delicious flavor profile. Smooth, rich, and full-bodied without the bitterness and grit found in other presses. And as a bonus, AeroPress can brew thousands of recipes. AeroPress travels better than others too. It's compact and incredibly durable. That means that you'll never have to endure terrible coffee at the hotel, on the job, or on an adventure again. It brews and cleans in less than two minutes. You just add medium fine coffee grounds, pour in hot water, stir for five seconds, brew for 30 seconds. Then you press it into your favorite mug and enjoy. There's a reason why AeroPress is the barista's favorite home brewing tool. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet with more than 55,000 five-star reviews. Thoughtful, proven, and under 50 bucks, AeroPress is the perfect gift or stocking stuffer for every coffee lover in your life this holiday season. 
Don't settle for less than the best. They'll love it. AeroPress is shockingly affordable, less than 50 bucks. And we've got an incredible offer for our audience. Visit AeroPress.com slash majority. That's A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash majority and save up to 20%. That's AeroPress.com slash majority to save up to 20%. It's time to ditch the drive through toss the French press and say yes to better mornings fueled by better coffee. AeroPress ships to the US and over 60 countries around the world. And we thank AeroPress for sponsoring our show. If you're a longtime listener, you might know that I've been drinking AG1 for about four or five years now. And when I started drinking AG1 daily, uh, it just made me feel a lot better during the day. I mean, it was like a very noticeable, very fast difference. Uh, and that's because AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement that supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. Not only did I replace my multivitamin with AG1, but I love that every scoop also includes probiotics, prebiotics, digestive enzymes, all the stuff that gives you immunity, which when you have two kids, a 10-year-old and a three-year-old, especially as we go into these winter months, like immunity is a big deal. Like it's the deal if you want to be able to feel good and not be constantly congested or whatever else you might come up with. So it's yet another reason uh, to have AG1 be a part of your life. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash majority. That's drinkag1.com slash majority. Check it out. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, If you're like me, this time of year, it starts to get a little gray. Here in Kansas City, it's been very gray the last couple weeks. It's also been really wet. It kind of reminds me of like that weird fictional place in that movie Seven, where it just rains all the time, even though randomly at the end of the movie, they go to the desert. Anyway, it's a little depressing, frankly, uh, as the seasons change and that kind of thing. And I know a lot of people get pretty down around the holidays. I personally get down after the holidays because like it's exciting when you're about to have the holidays and then after that it's just cold like january and february just cold that's the hardest time for me either way it's important to get ahead of it uh that's why i'm sure i'm going to be going to see my therapist a little bit here and there over the next you know two or three months just a little maintenance uh and look therapy is something you can benefit from a lot. Maybe you've never tried it. Maybe you've tried it and you want to try something else. Uh, maybe you, you want to do it in a way uh, like online where it's, it's more convenient for you. Either way, BetterHelp is, is there to be, uh, to be really helpful for you. So find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash M54 today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash M54. All right, Jason, well, you and I, I think it was a week or two ago, talked about this, um, as we, I think we both acknowledged, like rather uh, diplomatic way in which David Axelrod, who is Obama's former chief strategist, how he kind of nudged the Biden team to think about whether he should run again. Uh, he, he did it in a kind of roundabout way. But it, it looks like Biden's camp has really fought back. There's like all these op-eds, like Jim Messina, the 2012 Obama campaign manager, wrote a piece saying that, you know, everybody settled down, they dispatched surrogates, and then they somebody leaked the fact that Joe Biden called David Axelrod a prick for this. Uh, and so um, Ax, uh, in a very unlikely place, uh, gave some comments on the record to Maureen Dowd of the New York Times over the weekend. Axe said, I think he has a 50-50 shot here, but no better than that, maybe a little worse. He thinks he could cheat nature here, and it's really risky. They've got a real problem if they're counting on Trump to win it for them. I remember Hillary doing that too. I don't care about them thinking I'm a prick. That's fine. I hope they don't think the polls are wrong because they're not. Um, Jason, this is disturbing. <laughs> yeah, it's it feels a little <laughs> like our favorite uncles are disagreeing, and like we're it's a little like Thanksgiving might be for a lot of people. Like we're in the other room, and it's a little awkward. Uh, it, okay, so I think uh, some context here for everybody to understand is that, and why I think it's worthwhile to be concerned. Now, look, I'm 
I'm for Biden. I'm not out there. Look, there are people are still making betting odds on me, like running for president. So, like, I guess there's a world in which I have an interest in in one way or the other, either being a Biden surrogate guy uh, or, you know, being somebody who doesn't want to. I'm a little league coach from Kansas City, so I I feel I can be pretty unbiased on this. Um, I I think Biden's going to run and I think it's going to be a really close race. And I think we're going to have to do everything we can to help him win. I also think it's not unreasonable for uh, people to have these conversations out loud before we get into the heat of the campaign. And what I think is important to understand about all the players here, like that you just mentioned, is that the only one who doesn't in any way get paid to have to help a, a particular candidate or a particular cause who is not a political consultant anymore is Axe. Uh, Axe made a decision. Um, after the administration ended, uh, after the Obama administration ended, he made a decision that he was going to go on TV and be, and be a commentator. But within that, and I've had this conversation with him, he made the decision that if he was going to do that, he was going to give his unvarnished, honest opinion. And that meant that he was no longer going to be able to work for particular candidates or particular causes, because that was the only way he was going to be able to really be faithful to the idea of always just saying exactly what he thinks and giving exactly giving his true opinion about one strategy or another. And so the only thing he has done other than, uh, you know, obviously I'm sure he gives paid speeches, but, but other than the, uh, the work on CNN is he has his Institute of politics, um, where he does this with students. So Biden or so, so Axe is not a guy who's going to be working on the Biden campaign. He's not a guy who worked on the Hillary campaign. He's not a guy who worked, you know, on any of this stuff. And so I, Look, I just think it's reasonable for us to consider what he's saying, and and yes. I like I like Jim Messina a lot, but he still works in the in in the world of democratic politics, and and so everybody here, he's the Axe is the only one here who is just saying I really want a Democrat to be president, yeah, and I'm worried about this, and he he's reflecting what the people are telling us. Yeah. And folks could disagree with that or whatever. You know, there's there's this uh, iconic CEO from Mississippi uh, named Jim Barksdale, who was the uh, former CEO of Netscape and CEO of FedEx. And he used to say, if you've got data, show me the data. But if we've got opinions, we're going with mine. And in this case, the data is very <laughs> clear. And I am going to go with the, with uh, both the data and my own opinion here to the extent it matters at all. And I obviously have very little power over this. But the data is very clear that this is um, a very dicey endeavor. Uh, and as as Axe said, we're dealing not just with the political reality, but the actuarial reality, which is a huge risk on top of the real political issues that we have today, which are intertwined with this. And I would say that the reaction from Biden camp to this makes me even more concerned because anytime you show somebody data that is tough and they react in a defensive way, that makes me even less confident that they're going to be able to overcome that dynamic. Like a good example is uh, there, there are now a couple leaders, you know, I used to run this charter school network called Republic Schools in the South, and we got really good results and we did really well. And now we're two leaders later. And there were some tough results that came out like a month or two ago from Mississippi. And I don't really know the new leader. I just sent her results that had been leaked to me by a reporter. And I said, hey, like, didn't even say a lot. I just was like, I just want to make sure you got this. And she reacted super defensively, and I just replied saying, well, um, like something the equivalent of like, if you can't really handle hearing this, then I can't even begin to understand how you would solve for it, right? And so that's part of the issue that I see with Biden is like, I'm even more concerned after seeing their response, and especially reading like some of the people in his orbit, like Ron Klain. Um, what Messina wrote, which was a long screed that essentially should just be titled survivorship bias, you know, essentially saying we've made it before and we will make it again. I just, I'm not convinced. And I really, really hope they they reconsider this. And obviously if he runs, I'll be right behind him, wheeling, wheeling him around weekend at Bernie style. <laughs> but it's, I am, I am, I am, I'm not in any way confused as to which party I'll be voting for in this next election. I just hope that in this very limited window we have, we have an honest conversation about this. Yeah, because uh, like, look, I don't think either, perhaps you, I'm not saying Biden shouldn't run. I'm not there yet. Um, What I am saying is we all have to go into this clear-eyed with the idea 
that if Biden is running, who we're all for and we're all going to and would be better than anybody the Republicans can put up and has also, by the way, done an extraordinary job in a lot of ways. There's things like anybody else that I've not liked, but he's been extremely effective. Axelrod would say the same thing. Uh, but we should be clear eyed about what we're going into. And what we're going to be going into is an argument over something that we cannot control for, that's not going to change between now and the election. And if that's the case, we'd better start messaging about it now. And, and that messaging can't be, shut up, it's no big deal. Because it clearly is a big deal to some people. And if it's a big deal to some people, then we've got to focus on how do we address that. Um, yeah. And that's, I, that's all I'm saying. Here's, here, here's, my, here's my, I mean, I think he shouldn't run, but what I'm asking is at least think about it. Like, just, just, just think about it. Like, just have one, bring everybody in, bring, bring in Jill, bring in, bring in Axe. Like, hear him out. Like, the stakes couldn't be higher. Like spend yeah. an afternoon with Axe uh, and let Axe talk to you about it instead of, you know, stiff arming him. You know, he's, he's the, probably the brightest political strategist um, of his generation and probably since. I'm not sure who's been better. And he gave us two terms of Obama uh, and was integral to that, like absolutely integral to the, to the rise and maintenance of the Obama image going all the way back in, to in, the state. Including, the, US including the Senate race. Yeah, right. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. Like, I mean, yeah, like people, he he understands like, this stuff. I think that's a great point. Just bring an axe for a conversation, and and hear him out. Even if it's even if you start the conversation with, "Look, I'm running. What's your advice about it?" Okay, you know, like that's yep. if that's what you're going to do. That's what you're going to do. But yeah, you can't underestimate the value of a person. Now, axe will. He always says the same thing when you talk about how important, you know, how amazing what he did was. He always says, well, look, everybody looks good driving a Maserati, saying yeah. Obama was an, was an incredible candidate. He, so he's always self-deprecating uh, about that. But he took a guy not that long after 9-11 named Barack Hussein Obama and got him elected first to the U.S. Senate and then soon thereafter to the presidency for two terms with the help of people like Messina and others. Uh, and... I don't know. That's a guy I'd want to hear out if he was saying maybe I shouldn't run again. And and so I think your yeah. point is a good one, which is just go into this with knowing exactly what you're doing and, and make your decision. Don't want it there's be an amazing there's an amazing historical artifact which I, I believe Axe wrote about in his book The Believer. And I wonder if the whole thing is online or not. But I was his assistant during the general election in two thousand eight, which means I was on his email. And the he emailed to himself in the middle of election day, uh, 2008, the, a document, uh, and I forget the name of the document, but it was something conspicuous enough for me to click on it. So I click on the document, and it's, it turns out it was a, a memo that Axe wrote to Barack Obama in the winter of 2006 into 2007, before Obama had decided whether he was going to run. And this memo was one of the most remarkable things I've ever read. Axe starts it off, and this is just how, how honest he is. He says, look, running for president is the hardest thing anybody could do, and I'm not sure whether you're Muhammad Ali or Floyd Patterson when it comes to taking a punch. You know, and he's like, look, you're going to get hit in ways you've never been hit. You're going to be scrutinized in ways you've never been scrutinized. But then he went through and said, like, look, like, and here are all the reasons why you wouldn't want to run. But then here are the reasons why you might want to. And he went through a history of what the American public is looking for in candidates, especially when you have a two-term president leaving, and how they're always looking to address what they view as the um, shortcomings of that two-term president, even if that two-term president leaves popular, which obviously wound up happening with Obama to Trump, right? And so, and he and he he goes through this whole historical analysis and kind of lays it at his feet and says, "Now you have to decide, and you have to decide right now while you're in Hawaii for the winter, because if you're going to do this, we got to come out the gates running." And my hope is that some version of that gets to Biden. And then if it's not Axe, there needs to be somebody in his orbit who's that honest with him. And I am just not convinced that they're there right now. And so this is why I'm, this is why I'm concerned. I'm very concerned. I, you make a great point. And th that's one of, it's, it's really interesting. I never heard that. And it's, uh, other than reading it a bit in the, reading about it in the book. Um, but I, uh, the quality of 
honesty, like unvarnished honesty and an advisor on anything, particularly something as high stakes as that is so important. And it's also, it's just part of Axe's personality. I mean, he's just honest to a fault. That's how he is. Uh, and I've experienced it. And I'm sure you've experienced it. I've experienced it in little ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I remember <laughs> when I was getting ready to run for president and I did the Axe Files and you know, he he questioned me hard on the show, even though right before that, we had had a conversation where he knew exactly what I was planning to do. And we had talked about it a lot, but he still like went after me on the show. And that night, I remember me texting him and, and thanking him and saying, like, you know, that was a pretty tough interview. How how take off your interviewer hat? How'd I do? And he said, other than when you were talking about your time doing stuff in politics, you sounded great. He's like that part. You sounded like a politician. And then and this is like he had just interviewed me hours earlier. Yeah. And then I remember because uh, I was. A fellow in his program. And so I was lecturing uh, to his students. And, um, and it wasn't like kids enrolled in particular things. They just showed up for, for your lectures. And I had a pretty good crowd uh, in one of them. And I go upstairs to Axe and I was like, I don't know if you, uh, I saw you walked by. I don't know if you saw a pretty good crowd in there. He goes, yeah, pretty good crowd. And he goes, we've had bigger before though. <laughs> like, it's just, it's just like, but not even in like a cutting or like, he's not a joking way. It just, that's Axe, man. Like he's just yeah. going to tell you. And everybody needs one of those. You happen to be married to one of them, but everybody <laughs> in their life needs one of those. Uh, all right. Well, okay. Let's, let's end on uh, the big news of the week, which is Thanksgiving is tomorrow. It'll be today for those of you who get this on audio. And this is where we usually talk. Sometimes we brought in guests from the audience to talk about how they're going to talk to family members. This is a weird year for this because it's far enough away from 2024 that I'm not sure how much damage you're going to do. Uh, my big advice is just listen. I wouldn't even do any attempting to persuade anybody. I would just try to figure out what's in the zeitgeist out there. Tweet at us. Send us messages if you hear anything interesting. Like, What are some of the arguments people are making one way or the other? Um, how are people making sense of the Trump Biden age thing? How is Israel Palestine uh, shaping conversations? Is politics even a dominant conversation today? Maybe it won't be. Um, that's what maybe open AI is. Maybe people are like, what the hell is going on over there? And actually in many ways, the less politics being discussed right now, the better, uh, because we want we want to kind of push as much of the decision making as close to the election as possible when we can maximize our chances. Yeah, I think uh, our general advice is usually twofold on this stuff. One is uh, what you just said, which is go into this with a curious mindset. Go into this from a, a true place of genuine curiosity so that when people are saying things that offend you or you disagree with, make it your goal to try and understand why they feel that way rather than automatically go right into arguing back against them. Because for one thing, if these are your family members, the hope is, is that between now and the election, you're going to get some more reps. You're going to get some more shots with them. So get a real sense for the battlefield you're working with and try and really understand their motivations, their concerns, like what makes them feel anxious about the future, that kind of thing. Uh, and then the second thing is that if you are going to make your case, because if people ask you questions about what you're feeling, um, personalize it. Don't don't tell them something they could hear on MSNBC. Don't tell them something that they could have read in the paper. Uh, talk about your own anxieties and your own fears. Talk about it in terms of your family. Like uh, if the issue is, I don't know what, uh, like in Missouri, what I would advise people to talk about uh, would be particular to here, which is that a lot more schools because of um, because of budgets and that kind of thing, a lot more public schools are going to four day a week and uh, for school. Like, and so that's something where if you're going to talk about Democrats and Republicans, Democrats want it to be five days a week. I would talk about, you know, the idea that like, hey, you know, I work for a living, you know, like I have a job. And so that would be problematic for me, you know, that kind of thing. So I think it's really important to personalize it because it's a lot harder to come at you uh, and to make it as um, venomous uh, or, uh, you know, have as much animosity when it's about your personal experience and you're their family member. Um, and then I want to talk about, and you, you had put this in the outline, Robbie, for good reason. You know, uh, our good, our good buddy Dan Pfeiffer uh, talked about this on his podcast, but also had a post about his recommendation: is skip your your MAGA uncle. Like, don't don't worry mm -hmm. about that person. That person is lost. Uh, focus on your Biden skeptical cousin or whoever the Biden skeptical person is there. And I agree with that. I know we both do. We've talked about that, but I would I would amend it slightly, and that would be. With your Biden skeptical cousin, yes, in one-on-one -on -one conversations, 
focus on them. But when you're all sitting together, it's fine to focus on your MAGA uncle because use your MAGA uncle as the foil for your and and your your cousin, your Biden skeptical cousin. They're the jury. So because you can make sure to make them also highly Trump skeptical. And and one of the easiest ways to do that is to get your 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 MAGA uncle talking. Yes. Um, and the so less don't, you say, don't the better. To do that. Yeah. Have them talk. Let them hang themselves, and then just appear to be the rational questioner. And you can close the deal later on. Uh, you just want to be like exactly. the kind of person who has very little to say. Make it seem like they're the ones on trial, not Biden. Right. Like make them explain mm -hmm. themselves. Make them explain Trump. Find subtle ways to shift the conversation away from Biden onto Trump. And if you're on Biden, um. Try to talk through like you're. It's less about the man at this point than the performance. And we've talked about this before. The economy is doing really well. He seems to be brokering peace in the Middle East, or at least a ceasefire. Four days. I don't want to overstate. I said he brokered. Yeah, peace yeah. Let's not let's not oversell it. Let's not oversell it. Yeah. Um, the economy is doing really, really well right now. Who knows how long that lasts? But at, he deserves to at least reap the rewards of that, right? Um, he he has us in a relatively stable place as a country, given the many many crises he's been handed, whether it's COVID, Afghanistan, which he we as we know could have done a lot better, the banking crisis, the economy, inflation, Israel, Palestine, Ukraine. I mean, you can go down the list, right? Uh, and here we are. Yeah, and it is it's it's just really a classic trial strategy. It's that what you do is you don't ask that last question. They're not going to recant that your MAGA uncle is not going to change their opinion in front of your Biden skeptical cousin. Right. But like what my, I just watched my cousin Vinny with true the other night because he was curious about lawyer stuff. And, and Great. so one of the things I was showing him is that what happens in that movie that doesn't happen in real trials is you don't, you don't actually ask the, well, don't you think maybe you were wrong about that then question? You don't do that in real life. What you do in real life is you ask a bunch of questions uh, and then you have a little legal pad at your table, at your counsel table, where you write down all the things that have come out of your cross-examination that you're going to use in your closing, which means you don't ask the last question, but you do answer it in your closing argument. So for instance, when you ask, uh, you may ask several questions about the indictments uh, in your conversation with your MAGA uncle that you're Biden skeptical cousin is listen are listening to, but then you don't say, well, don't you think that makes him uh, disqualified from running? Don't you think that makes it unacceptable that he's president? No, you write down the indictments make you know in your mind. You write down the indictments make him they're disqualifying, and then when you talk later with your Biden skeptical cousin, you say that. And so yeah. don't 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 take it too far. Mostly just ask questions and and don't try and pin them in. Um, Love so. It. All right. Hey, uh, we did it again. Uh, for grabbing ore, talk about arena real quick and then we'll get to one for us. Oh yeah. Well, we are doing, for those of you in New York on December 9th, we're doing an arena reunion event. And even if you've never been to an arena event before, you are invited. If you go to my Instagram at Ravi M. Gupta, it's in my profile. You can click the link. Any amount you give gets you invited to our fancy party in New York City. And arena is a, an organization that has supported candidates um, running for office. It runs the largest training operation for Democratic staffers in the country. And it runs Arena Careers, which is a way to bring transparency to the talent game uh, for campaigns. So it's not just Ivy League, um, you know, like fancy people who get the right jobs on campaigns, but that it opens up to people all across the country. And what happened was Arena uh, like most democratic organizations right now, is facing a little bit of a pullback from donors who inexplicably are investing less in infrastructure this year. And so the current, you know, I used to run it. Uh, Jason, you spoke at our very first event, which this is the seven-year anniversary of that event. It's cool. crazy. I've known you for seven years. And uh, so on December 9th in New York City, we're having this event. But even if you can't make the event, you can go, you can click on that link in my bio and you can give. I'm, I'm going to drop it into the comments of the, after I'm finished talking right now, I'll drop it in the comments on YouTube as well so people could see it there. Um, but give whatever you can, it really helps because what we're doing is we, we run these academies to train people from all around the country to run campaigns and we've got people all across the country in hundreds if not thousands of campaigns at this point. Um, and we give tons of scholarships to people because what we want are people who uh, where their financial background isn't going to be an obstacle to them working on campaigns because often it's the people who um, 
are like average people who come from all walks of life that actually run the best campaigns, right? It can't just be people who go to fancy universities and grew up, you know, with multi-million, you know, multi-millionaire parents, right? So uh, I'm going to drop that into the YouTube, but also people can go to my Instagram and you can find it there as well at Ravyam Gupta. Uh, awesome. Yeah, super worthy cause. I fully endorse and hope people will do it. Um, one for us, mine is short. Uh, apparently, uh, schools are just letting kids out for the entire week for Thanksgiving now, which is awesome for kids. Um, makes it a little more challenging for parents, but so it has been a fun slash chaotic week here at home. Uh, and uh, but but I bet I bet your week has been a lot different as usual. <laughs> uh, what the heck is going on? It's been very quiet since I've been back in India. I'm just sticking with the routine, getting stuff done. Uh, yeah, I I've been so boring. I don't even have anything to share. Uh, so, which is exciting. I think your Bills won. Tomorrow. Congratulations. We did, man. We're, we're just, back on we're track. Do we literally have to win every game for the rest of the season? To, do. I think we could lose one game. Uh, and we can, we could afford to lose one, maybe two, three. We're totally up. So, and we, we just happen to be playing all the best teams in the NFL. Yeah. You have, you have a rough schedule. Yeah. You, you so absolutely we, do. So. Yeah. We don't. We'll All right. Well, uh, you can find Ravi, as he said, uh, on pretty much anywhere on social media at Ravi M. Gupta. And I am same places at Jason Kander. Uh, remember to subscribe to Majority 54 wherever you listen to audio podcasts. Just search Majority 54 and please leave a five-star review. Thank you to the Midas Mighty. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today.